You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Ranjeev. Hi, guys. Welcome. Welcome and hello to our listeners. Welcome back to our special Common Descent Spotlight mini-series. As you know, if you've been listening up to this point, this series we break from the normal format of chatting about particular scientific topics and instead focus on some scientific people. Over the mini-series, we've been following the theme of invertebrate paleontology. This is the fifth of five in this series, and this, for our final episode, we are joined by invertebrate paleontologist Ranjeev Appa. Would you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Uh, I'm Ranjeev Appa. I'm from Sri Lanka, which is a very beautiful country just to the south of India. I got my uh, bachelor's degree uh, in zoology from the University of Peradeniya in Sri Lanka. I got my master's in geology from Ohio University, and I just started my second year in my PhD program in geology here at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Excellent. And your, gra- your master's advisor was Dr. Alicia Stegall, correct? Yes, she was my advisor. <laughs> she was our guest in episode three of this series. So there's oh. connections there. <laughs> now, we love starting these series off by talking about the invertebrates that our guests study. And you, we know, are a big fan of bivalves. That is correct. <laughs> so can you start off by telling our listeners what are bivalves? Certainly. Bivalves are mollusks that have two valves. They belong to the uh, class Bivalvia, which is the second most diverse class within the phylum Mollusca. So we have about 10,000 living species of bivalves at present. Um, So we find bivalves in uh, marine, brackish water, and also in freshwater settings. Um, If you look at uh, bivalves in the modern, uh, you can see a range of sizes and shapes of bivalves. Talk about the shapes, you get bivalves that are perfectly uh, oval in shape. We get bivalves that are broadly triangular. And uh, in the case of oysters, their outline is very variable. And it may depend on factors like the substrate and the degree of crowding as well. So oysters are an example of bivalves and then clams and mussels, all the delicious stuff. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you talk about the size ranges, the smallest bivalve is a species of nutclam, condylonicula maya, and the adult is about a a half a millimeter in length. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I know, right? So, and the, the, the largest bivalve, the, 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 the giant clams, Tridacnar gigas, they can reach a length of about four and a half feet. So they're huge. So we've got a broad range, broad range of, in terms of size. Wow. Big enough to eat a child. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, I guess not eat a child. They're filter. Are, are all bivalves filter feeders? Um, not really. Uh, oh. A majority of them are, but we also have bivalves that are carnivorous. So bivalves have siphons, 
tubes that which they use to uh, bring in the um, uh, water. So these carnivorous guys had their one of their siphons uh, modified into a, like a cup-shaped structure so that they could like bring in oh. their potential prey. So they're very interesting bivalves. Very very interesting. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so um, as I mentioned before, bivalves have two valves. Um, let's call them shells, right? So these shells are actually made out of calcium carbonate. And there are actually two polymorphs of calcium carbonates that uh, bivalves use to build their shells, aragonite and calcite. So um, uh, depending on the species, they would either use aragonite or calcite or a mixture of both. So uh, bivalve, the, the, the shell is actually made out of different layers. The outermost layer is an organic layer, which we call the periostracum. And uh, towards the interior, we have the calcareous layers. Um, and depending on the species, the, the number and the microstructure of the uh, inner layers do vary. If you, if you guys have looked at like bivalves in real close detail, you'd see that some bivalves have like very interesting uh, sculptures on their uh, surface. So some of them like, are radially uh, distributed from the dorsal part of the shell and some, some are parallel to the ventral margin. So these ornamentations are thought to be advantageous for uh, bivalves in burrowing and stabilizing them. Oh. But also they've been interpreted as antipredatory traits as well. So they're spiky and ridged. I'm thinking like an oyster. Right. Helpful for burrowing, but also conveniently makes you not very palatable. Yes, so we, we have we have uh, bivalves with spines. So if you take uh, if you look at spondylus, the um, I think it's called the thorny oyster, they have very prominent spines. Um, there's a hypothesis behind that uh, suggests that that helps as an antipredatory trait, but also as a surface for epibionts to lay on, uh, to, uh, lay on so that. Uh, they provide the, the bivalve with a very good camouflage from the predators. Okay. Oh, excellent. Makes it a, a rougher surface for the, those to attach and everything. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. So now whenever I think of bivalves in terms of fossils, and we mentioned this earlier in this series, I always think of bivalves and brachiopods together mm-hmm. because they're the classic two-shelled yep. invertebrates. Now, in episode three, when we talked to Alicia, she held up brachiopods as the best of the shelled invertebrates and and put down bivalves a little bit. Would you like to respond to that? <laughs> well, um, when I when I joined her lab for the first time as a grad student, the, one of the first things that she told me is um, brachiopods are the best uh, animals ever, and they rule above. Uh, all the other animals. So um, (laughs) being a shell collector uh, for like 30 odd years, um, I mean, they do look like bivalves, so um, I'm I'm okay with that, but um, (laughs) 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 But, yeah, um, well, looking at the modern, I I, I would stick with bivalves because they are prettier. They have beautiful color patterns. Yeah, I just love bivalves. Um, I do love brachiopods. I, I love fossils. I love any fossil, but uh, I would go with mollusks as the best. Ooh. 
All right, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> we have a we have a, an invertebrate debate. <laughs> okay, so you do more than admiring bivalves; they're also the center of your research. Can you tell us what are you? What's your research about? So at present, I'm working on a research project where I look at biotic interactions that are recorded on uh, the shell surface. So if you think about it, like every seashell has a story to tell about what happened to them when they were living and what happened to their valves when they died. To read the story, you got to look at the shells real close. So uh, there are some traces uh, on, 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 a, on a shell of a bivalve that you can interpret as live-live interactions as opposed to post-mortal interactions. Um, so my research at present is focused on looking at live-live interactions on a, a, a massive collection of thioplysocene fossils of Florida. So I think I have about 15,000 shells. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I sipped out a 10-liter 10, 10 bucket full of uh, shell material um, over the break. So... Um, I got a lot of um, shells to play with. so <laughs> Just a few. Just a few. <laughs> so what I'm doing is I'm looking at uh, basically three types of uh, interactions. Predatory drillings, prematode-induced shell malformations, and uh, polychaete-induced shell malformations. Now, when you say predatory drillings, we do, there's an activity that Will and I both, I do it now again, but I'm back, and we both used to do uh, at the museum we worked at with marine fossils from the Aurora site in North Carolina. And we'd get these little bivalve shells with these perfectly little round holes through them. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing? Yes, yes, exactly. So that's, there are, there are, that's a unique set of predators that are able to drill into shelled animals like uh, bivalves and snails. And they're able to feed on the internal tissues. But if you look at a bivalve or a snail, you'd see that they are littered with holes, like after they died, obviously. They're littered with holes. So you gotta be able to differentiate between a predatory drill hole versus a, a non-predatory uh, hole, which like some of the uh, uh, sponges that Cleona would produce, uh, which are burrowing, uh, like, uh, which they use as like their house. So uh, there are like several uh, criteria that needs to be met to be class, uh, for a drilling to be classified as a predatory drill hole. The first one is like there should be only one drill hole per prey animal, just one. Makes sense. We do have very rare occasions where we, we have two, but just one. Then the size of the drillings should, weigh, uh, should have a specific shape, which would depend on the predator and the prey to some extent. The size of the drillings should uh, be within a narrow size range. The drillings should always be made perpendicular to the valve surface. And the drillings should be from the outside to the inside. And typically, drillings should show a non-random distribution on the surface of the prey uh, so that we know this is biological uh, as opposed to something taxonomic. Okay. And what sort of predators are these that are attacking these clams? In, in, the, in the modern <laughs> system, we have two uh, dominant drillers. Both of them are snails. We have the moon snails, family Noticidae, and we have the muricid snails, muricidae. 
uh, which are the dominant drillers today. Very cool. Drilling process itself is a combination between um, uh, mechanical rasping and chemical dissolution. Oh, so so they're the because snails have the the raspy radula scraper tongue. Right. And they're using that as a drill, but they're also dissolving. Yes, the the these snails have something called the uh, accessory boring organ, so uh, they're able to produce um, acids that dissolves the shells. So. Man, that makes it so much worse for the bivalve. Like yeah. the idea of getting <laughs> drilled into is bad, but now it's like you just zzz, and then <laughs> 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 just, that's exactly. awful. But I get a chance to look at drill holes, uh, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Interestingly, um, if you look at the history of predation, drill holes are the first evidence of predation like ever. So there are these uh, Precambrian uh, tibular fossils called Claudina. They have within themselves like uh, tiny drill holes, which are interpreted as predatory drill holes. That's very That's cool. That's awesome. Now you said in your research, you're seeing predate, uh, you know, predation evidence. Mm-hmm. And then you also said malformation right. from a couple of sources. Right. So um, I look at premature induced malformation. So prematodes are parasitic flatworms. They use bivalves as either their first or second intermediate host. So when they use them as the second intermediate host, there's a stage called the metasecaria stage of the parasite. They are able to produce a, a shell. A, a shell malformation, actually two shell malformations. One is a oval shaped pit with a very prominent rim around it. And another, which we call as an igloo, igloo structure. It looks like an igloo. So it got like a mm-hmm. blister with a narrow opening at one end. So oh, these, wow. these are very diagnostic to uh, primitive induced malformations. So I look at those as well. And I look at uh, malformations caused by polychaetes. So polychaetes uh, of the, um, so there's a family of polychaetes called the Spionidae. So these guys burrow into shells. Um, They're not predatory, they just use that burrow as their home. But Hmm. if they uh, happen to penetrate an area of the shell, which we call the extraperial space, which is the um, area between the shell and the mantle. The host react by uh, uh, secreting shell layers to, to wall off the intruder, oh. so which results in an elongated blister, which we call as a mud blister, which may include mud, uh, worm feces, and sometimes the worm itself. And uh, these are preserved uh, very nicely in the fossil record. Wow, that's that's awesome. That'd be that's like literally a time capsule. That's exactly. really wow. So I'm picturing the um, every now and then you'll see a a tree that has a branch, a really thin branch with that bulge in the middle where some kind of insect has parasitized it and it changes the shape. Right. So you're seeing that in your yes shell. Yes. So if you that's really cool. If you've, so in the case of uh, the. Uh, Polychaetes, if you flip the shell over to see the outside uh, of the shell, just close to where the mud blister is, you might see a very nice uh, paired uh, holes, which resemble the number eight, which shows the entry and exit of the worm. Huh. Oh, that's cool. Wow. 
Now you said you're looking at plyo Pleistocene fossils. So two, two or three million years old. Yes. I presume. Yes. I think it's a little bit older than that. And what are you hoping to discover? So, I mean, if you look at uh, literature, there's been a lot of work done on uh, predator drill holes, but not so much on premature parasitism and uh, not so much on uh, polychaete malformations either. So what I want to see is uh, if there's like any taxonomic selectivity or some sort of uh, core factor that, that contributes into some species being a uh, having um, a, a, a higher prevalence of any of these traces. So that's some, at a broader range, broader scale, that's what I'm um, looking at. But um, um, I still have a lot more shells to work with. So I'm pretty sure I'll come up with, uh, every time I see a, a, a weird trace, um, I, I develop several new hypotheses in my head. So um, <laughs> it's really interesting because um, you never know what you're going to find when you look at a shell. And once you find something, you got to you got to use all your knowledge and try to figure out what this is. It's like very rewarding when you find a, a, a parasitic pit. I know it's not for the clam, <laughs> but it's, for me, it's very rewarding. So, it's, I, I'm fond of saying that good paleontology is based on past tragedy. <laughs> it's the worst yeah, day sure. for the clam, the more interesting for us. <laughs> I agree. Sad. <laughs> it's sad, but it's true. <laughs> now, the predation and the parasitism that you're seeing in these ancient bivalves, how do they compare to what you see today? Is it similar structures? Are there any things you see in the fossil record that you don't see today? Well, we're going on, uh, like, we're using the modern as a, a good starting point. Um, so, the structures we see are quite similar uh, to what we see in the fossil records. So there's not a lot of uh, uh, difference. There've been there've been um, past research done on uh, how the placement of drill holes migrated over time, but more or less like um, from my experience, uh, what I see in the modern is pretty much what I would see in the fossils as well. So okay. One of the recurring themes that keeps coming up, hence the, hence the word recurring, <laughs> David, is this pattern where invertebrate paleontologists end up with a lot to work with. Yes. And you said you have 15,000 shells to look mm -hmm, at. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned this in, in previous episodes of this series, of the Spotlight series. That's ridiculous. That's the kind of thing you only get with inverted. I was expecting you to say like maybe a, a, a hundred, you know, 1500. <laughs> uh, well, the, the more samples I have, uh, the happier I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's one of those big differences between invertebrate paleontology and vertebrate paleontology where we're happy to get, you know, at the gray fossil site, we were thrilled to find one mastodon. Yeah. <laughs> like that's incredible. We, we could, how could you hope for more than yep. that? And you have 15,000 of your study specimen, which is really cool. I agree. I, I, I love what I do. I spend a lot of time in the lab. And sometimes my friends like have to like ask me to leave because uh, I mean, I, 
I, I spend literally hours and hours in the lab. <laughs> the cool thing, the thing that I'm always impressed by with this kind of research that has such a, a rich supply of specimens is that you get that nice spectrum of all the different views and all the different cases. And that's really cool because you get, you know, with fossils, it's never the complete picture, but it, you're getting a, a really solid image. And that's awesome. Yeah, lucky for me, bivalves have a very good uh, potential for preservation because of their hard shell and to some extent their uh, uh, infernal ecology aspects. So. Excellent. Is there anything else you wanted to say about your research? Uh, I could say one other thing. So, um, sure, sure. I first saw a predatory drill hole when I was three years old. I had no idea oh, really? what that was. <laughs> and it took me about 20 years to figure that out. But the moment I saw that drill hole, I knew like this is, this is going to be an awesome uh, trace. And I would be like, I would be really, I would really love to know what this is. And um, today I'm working on that. That's awesome. That's, awesome. That, that's fantastic. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> I think the first time I ever saw a predatory drill hole, I assumed someone's shell necklace had broken. <laughs> yeah, that was. I thought it was a bead, you know, a shell that had been made into a bead. Well, it's interesting that you said predatory drill holes almost always show up one hole per shell, mm-hmm. which means some of the things that I've been seeing in that Aurora stuff that I thought were drill holes are not. Because I've seen shells with like a hundred, not a hundred, but a whole bunch, a uh, lot of little drill holes in them. Those are probably uh, the the result of a boring sponge. Um, so okay. uh, a predator, so uh, a drill hole that is uh, being drilled by a moon snail would have a, 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 a distinct profile. So it would have what we call a countersunk profile. So you'd have an outer drill hole and an inner drill hole. The inner drill hole is like smaller than the outer drill hole and the walls are curving like the parabolics that curvy oh cool and the um the mirrored drill holes are like straight walls so you got the outer drill hole and the they drill like straight down so it's just, it's a straight wall drill hole as opposed to uh the um uh, the, uh, the moon snails one so they've been given different ichno uh, uh ichno species names as well so um Mm-hmm. The drill holes done drilled by Moonstar, which has that profile, is uh, referred to as Oichnus parabolides, I think. And um, the Muricid ones are called uh, Oichnus simplex. Surprisingly, okay. they've also found drill holes that have been drilled by um, octopi as well. So <gasps> those are called Oichnus ovalis. They are like much more, I think they are more oval shaped and they have like this weird gutter. Uh, that runs. That's awesome. So I don't know much about different kinds of sponges. I did not know that there were burrowing sponges that would drill holes. Are these sponges aiming for bivalves or is it more like happenstance that they're just drilling through the shell as they're... They just like uh, just burrow into uh, these uh, shells. I think they use them as like a, a, a house. Oh, interesting. If I send you pictures of these shells that I see with holes in them, can you tell me what drilled them? Sure. I am definitely going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. We're making connections here on the podcast. (laughs) So one note I wanted to make uh, for people who have listened to the, to 
other episodes of our podcast, we've talked about species before. The notion that you don't know what made your drill hole or footprint exactly, so you give a species name to the trace. Exactly. We are not concerned about the uh, trace maker. We just focused on the, uh, the trace itself because a single organism can produce multiple traces and uh, vice versa. So if we like think about the trace maker, it would like really confuse the thing. So let's talk a bit about your experience as a graduate student. So you're a PhD student now. That's correct. At the University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. What is your department like? What is the paleontology program like? Oh, it's awesome. I, I love it there. Um, so a bit of a backstory. Uh, so I've been a grad student since 2015. So it's almost four years now. Because I'm an international grad student, I was very nervous uh, coming here because I'm moving to a new country, going to be away from my friends and family for a long time. But what worked for me is like I had a perfect environment. What I mean by that is um, I had two wonderful advisors, both at Ohio University and here at the University of Missouri, were wonderful people who were doing research that I was like truly interested in. And I chose the right research for me. Um, so when I go to work, I actually don't feel like I'm doing work. I feel like I'm doing something that is much more relaxing. And that's why I spend a, a crazy amount of time in the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, I also uh, made a lot of cool friends from different countries who've been like helping me throughout my stay here, which is very important for international grad students. I also had an added advantage of uh, my wife and my brother being here in the U.S., which always helps to have family close by. Uh, one of the most important things that happened to me in my grad life was meeting uh, researchers that I've been idolizing for a long time. So uh, about a year ago, I got a chance to meet Professor Patricia Kelly, who's like this towering figure uh, in research and drilling predation. I had a fantastic discussion with her. I also got a chance to meet Professor Neil Shubin when I was in Ohio. Um, so the list goes on. So uh, that's like one of the rewarding uh, moments of my uh, program so far. I, I must say one thing that uh, when I applied to a geology program, I was extremely nervous because my undergraduate degree was in zoology and I had never taken a geology class before that. <laughs> So I was wondering if I'm going to, how I'm going to, how I'm going to do this. So uh, what the graduate programs, the, the graduate programs at both Ohio and here at Missouri was structured in a way that apart from us taking advanced courses, we had a room, we had room to take uh, classes that would help us uh, in, our, in any, any uh, deficiencies we had in geology or in any other field. So I really benefited from that um, uh, and help, it helped me uh, very much in my progress. Uh, so uh, with my experience uh, of being in both these programs, I would like to like take this opportunity to recommend the uh, geology program at Ohio and here at the University of Missouri to anyone who's interested in uh, learning paleontology because I know from my experience that I like benefited a lot from these programs. I sympathize with you completely. I had a, my, my undergrad was biology and my school actually did not have any geology 
courses. I was a small little college. So I, I, I wouldn't have taken them had they been available probably either, but (laughs) I did not have the option. So I was complete bio, you know, focusing on the animal stuff when I got into uh, my master's program as well. So I, I had to brush up a bit more knowledge on the geological side of things. I mean, it's like, uh, so when you're a biology, when you do biology, you know how to think like a biologist. Now, like once I've taken geology, now I know how rocks think, rocks like think about stuff. So um, mm-hmm. imagine, in a, so what, what would a rock do? Kind of like, that mm-hmm. thing. so um, you get a complete uh, idea, you know, a broader idea. And so once you're able to speak geology, I mean, that gives you a lot of tools uh, to work with, uh, as, especially as a paleontologist. And you kind of need both biology and zoology. Uh, sorry, biology and geology. I'm, I'm really glad I, I came into a geology department. And uh, as I said, I benefited a lot from uh, the graduate programs at uh, Ohio and here in Missouri. PhD programs are notorious for i mean you, if you're on twitter or anywhere on the internet people talk have a, there's a lot of you know stories of of stress and and lots of work in phd programs what is it like to be a phd student well i actually love what i do so um my my overall goal is to become a teacher um so you kind of need a, a a thorough understanding of your field in order for you to become a, a, a efficient teacher. As a PhD student, I enjoy my classes and I enjoy my research. If you don't love what you do, it's 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 not going to work out. So um, I uh, I know a PhD student like typically they'll say that they'll have a lot of work. I mean, it is true, but if you love your, if you love what you do, you, I don't think you would feel that there's a lot of work to do. I mean, you, every, every morning, like when you wake up, you are so excited to go to your office, to your dad. I mean, the first time I, like, the first class I took at Ohio was on immunology. And this is like, that I, I, I loved it so much that like, um, I, I was really sad when it was over, <laughs> to say. Um, but um, yeah, if you're excited about it, I mean, however much work you have, it, I mean, you won't feel it. That's very encouraging. Yes. <laughs> very nice to hear. Now, in your situation, and you mentioned, you touched on this a little bit before, you're an international graduate student. That's correct. What, how has that affected your... Uh, experience as a grad student. So I get got to witness how uh, the the university system works here. How how the uh, classes are, are conducted here. Um, how how teaching is done here. So there are some differences. There are some similarities. So I actually was a TA in Sri Lanka, and I was uh, what we call a probationary lecturer in my university before coming here. So I had some teaching experience which helped a, a lot when uh, uh, TAing here, here in the U.S. You, I, I've gained a lot of experience in um, teaching. One of the major differences uh, in courses that I find here is like uh, 
almost all of the classes here requires you to write a, a project, uh, a paper. I, 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 I don't recall like having to write a paper for like a lot of classes I took in Sri Lanka. So that's something different uh, that I experienced, which was uh, when I, uh, in my first semester, I found it a little bit uh, difficult writing papers, but with time, I, I got the hang of it and I, now I enjoy writing uh, papers for classes. So last semester, uh, one of, or the semester before that, one of my professors asked us to write a paper and I decided to write a paper on reinterpretation. The professor has asked us to write a paper for four pages and I have accidentally written a paper of 20 odd pages. So, <laughs> so those yeah. things also happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so um, as an international student, um, I got to experience how, um, how different the classes are. Also, uh, I got to experience what like societies like yeah, how people enjoy their time how uh, like you know and i was very much a part of it all my friends like uh, they they would like um, uh, ask me to join them so we would like go out and like you know um so i got to experience that part as well so um one thing that international students uh, should always remember is you got to uh, be aware of what the school requires you to do it may be like coursework uh, it may be like some other paperwork that you re you need to do, uh, which is very different from some some uh, the, the 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 other grad students. So you, you got to always keep in mind uh, of the requirements that uh, you you need to do as an international grad student, because if not, it it can get complicated. My advice to any international grad student is like, take out your handbook and read very <laughs> thoroughly. <laughs> I mean, I feel that I'm a better person, not a more knowledgeable person every day that I'm here. Awesome. How did you end up deciding to come over here to the United States? When I uh, applied for my programs, I applied to two professors uh, that I have I, I've done a lot of research on. So I followed their research for some time and I, I, I love what they did. So um, that's the first thing that I did. Secondly, I looked at the, uh, the classes that were offered and um, I found them to be very interesting. Thirdly, I looked at the department and the school, what, what they have. And um, uh, based on all of those decisions, I, I thought like, this is gonna be, uh, these universities are gonna be good for me, especially uh, the research that my professors were doing. That's like one of the most important things that uh, I looked at. Is there a lot of paleontology done in Sri Lanka? No, unfortunately. So uh, compared to other research, paleontology is not one of the sought out of fields. I mean, uh, we have uh, a good, uh, uh, we have good fossils, like we have uh, the oldest fossils we have are Jurassic, then we have a very uh, extensive Miocene deposit, and we have some uh, Pleistocene stuff as well. But I worked on the Miocene of Sri Lanka, and so the paper I published in 2011 was, I believe, the first paper published on Sri Lanka's Miocene in 40 years. So uh, wow. uh, there weren't a lot of things, a lot of work done on Miocene, but there are a, a lot of researchers working on the Jurassic and the Pleistocene. Excellent. Well, uh, it's great to hear that you're having such a great time 
with your graduate studies. I am. I like to hear from people. I'm enjoying. <laughs> I really am enjoying. I stay yeah. here. <laughs> you haven't been scared away from graduate school and you haven't been scared out of the United States. <laughs> no, <laughs> These are all good things. I was about to say, yeah. both admirable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it here. Wonderful. The other thing we've been asking our guests throughout this series, uh, as we've said in the previous episodes, we decided to schedule these interviews over the summer, which means that it's been a little bit of a challenge getting hold of some people. So we've been <laughs> asking our guests to talk about what they've been doing in the summer. And you now we, the, these episodes are being released in the order that we recorded them. And the reason that you are the fifth of five is because you were away for a huge chunk of the summer this year. Yes, I was. Can you tell us what, what, what has your summer consisted of? Well, uh, my summer was full of lab work. <laughs> so before the summer started, I uh, had a chance to sieve out my 10-liter bucket of shells. So I've been working, on the, working in the lab, photographing almost all of my shells and digitally measuring them, trying to identify some of my shells. Um, so it's been a lot of lab work. And some of my shells are like, very plastic in their morphology, so it takes some time to uh, identify them. And I've been looking at for the presence of tracers. So uh, my summer was full of uh, lab work, but I did get a chance to go out with my brothers. Coolest goes by. Now so I got a chance to uh, relax as well. But um, my summer was uh, in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> and we know you also went back home. Um, I was going to go back home, but oh. uh, it didn't work out well. So I'm planning, hopefully, to go back uh, for a brief visit during the winter break. I see. Okay. Fun. How often do you get to go back to Sri Lanka? So I've not been to Sri Lanka since I arrived here in Missouri. So it's, uh, I mean, it's a long flight. <laughs> um, so I, I imagine up try to go like once every year or so. It, it depends on uh, the amount of work I'm doing. So That makes sense. No, I, it's, <laughs> it's one of those where my home's an eight-hour drive away, and it's tricky to work that in on a regular basis. I can only imagine <laughs> a, a flight across the globe uh, is, is a little uh, uh, tight sometimes to fit into the schedule. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so when you go back home to Sri Lanka like you you got like so it takes about two days to go uh, and, and uh, we also have I, I would probably have jet lag for about a week or so <laughs> yeah. um, so that's a that's a big chunk that goes away so yeah so it is it is really difficult to plan in my case I, I, I I'm known to be uh, very bad at balancing work stuff with uh, other relaxing stuff because <laughs> my work like, relaxes me. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever it comes up, you're like, no, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, good, good luck with the, the future trip. Thank you. <laughs> now, when you're in the, when you're doing this lab work that you uh -huh. spend your summer and your, all of your other seasons doing, <laughs> you're sifting through, you're looking at stuff under the microscope. Uh -huh. Do you keep yourself occupied in any other ways while you're doing that? Some people like, everyone has a way that they sort of make their lab 
comfortable for themselves while they're doing tedious sciencey work. Well, I don't know if you guys would believe me. I do listen to the Common Decent podcast <laughs> while I'm whilst I'm working. Um, <laughs> that is um, not only what we like to hear, but what I was hoping your answer. Was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I've learned a lot from the podcast. Uh, to be honest, uh, like the episode on grass. Um, so that's something that like we don't actually think about a lot about grass. Uh, mm-hmm. But but yeah, us either. Yeah, <laughs> uh, as 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 um, animal uh, workers, as if I, if I may label myself. So I learned a lot from uh, listening to the comedy podcast, and um, try to take frequent breaks while I'm working on the microscope because it's important too. Yeah. So basically, I I've listened to uh, podcasts like yours uh, while I'm working. That makes me comfortable. And I had my uh, headphones on me. So uh, most of the time, someone would come behind and spook me as well. So. <laughs> you get that adrenaline back up. <laughs> yeah, you gotta wake up from all that staring at shells. Yes. <laughs> Ranjeev, we have had a great time talking with you on this episode. If our listeners want to find or follow you, where might they find you on the internet? You can always find me on my I have a Twitter account. Frequently update my research profile as well. So I have my uh, profile in my university. So if anyone's interested in contacting me or finding out what things I'm doing. Excellent. We'll put links to all that in the description of this episode. Dear listeners, we hope you have had a wonderful time listening to our discussion with Ranjeev, as well as the other discussions in the Spotlight series. This is part five of five. It's the end of the series. We hope that you had a great time meeting these paleontologists we've spoken to. We have had a wonderful time all five times, including this one. (laughs) <laughs> with Ranjeev. If this is something you like, let us know. We will do this again. We will do more. We'll do another spotlight series with another theme. Let us know. We, we've been very happy to see how enthusiastic uh, our guests have been to talk with us. Yes, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I, I would like to thank you guys for having, uh, having me in this episode. And I would like to also suggest a survey about uh, brachiopods versus spivals as well. <laughs> I did have that thought. I, actually, I was, I was going to mention that before we stopped recording because I did have that thought when, when you were talking about it. I was like, that, it would be fun to have a, have a side poll. Well, tell you <laughs> what, after this episode goes up, at the end of September, we will put up a poll once again, we'll put polls up on the social media <laughs> yes. and we'll direct people to this episode and to Alicia's episode <laughs> and we'll see if we can convince some people one way or the other. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that, folks. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and look for those polls, bivalves versus brachiopods. I'm going to have to think about this one. I don't know if I'm on a, I don't know if I'm on a side yet. Bivalves, bivalves. I'm pretty I, sure I know which side I'm going to fall on, but I'm not going to announce it here. I do like <laughs> eating bivalves. This is true. We'll see. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this series. Thank you again to Ranjeev. Thank you very much. We are honored to have you uh, teach us. Tell us all about your research and such. And with that, we bring our Spotlight series to a close. Hopefully, we'll be back again with more of this. And regardless, we'll be back with more other stuff in the future. 
we, we now return you to your regularly scheduled series of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye for now, everybody. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll see you. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.